This Women's Agenda podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, is supported by Salesforce. We often hear the phrase, you can't be what you can't see. But for non-Anglo women in Australia, this saying rings especially true. I'm Kate Mills, the host of Women's Agenda's new podcast series, The Leadership Lessons, supported by Salesforce. In this episode, I'm joined by Mothery Santhi Morgan, an activist, inclusion advocate, and founder of the Girls Rising Up movement. She has a simple mission to share the diverse stories of cross-cultural women and give them greater visibility. So, Mothery, fantastic that you could join us for this episode of The Leadership Lessons. You've got a really interesting background. You're originally from Malaysia. So how did you come to Australia? Um, so I am Sri Lankan Tamil by birth, which means that my family come from the northern part of Sri Lanka. We were colonized by the British and it was a time where the British were also looking to transfer, deploy people of Tamil origin to other colonies. Uh, my grandfather was one of them. And I think there was also a rising political tension that was happening in the time between the Sinhalese and the Tamils. So my grandfather moved to Malaya then with the British colony or with the British and uh, we grew up there so my parents were born there and I was born there. And how did you end up in Australia? So I went to university in Perth which feels like a very long time ago but in 2007 I was working for a British global conference organizing committee um, organization. They had over 50 offices worldwide. I worked in a production capacity which meant that I curated and created the content to do with economics and business in that particular market or sector. I was offered the opportunity to come out to Australia to head up the production division here and I jumped at the opportunity so you actually started working with that organization in KL, uh, Kuala Lumpur, sorry, before you moved to Sydney. What did you find the main differences, you know, in terms of working culture when you moved from Kuala Lumpur from Asia to Sydney? I think there were differences in terms of ways of working in Asia, for example, or in Malaysia. It's always seen to be a good thing to be at your desk till you know, very late hours. It's not a particularly good uh, sort of organization culture. But, you know, these were some of the differences that I saw. Australians, I found, valued work-life balance a lot more, which I thought was a really good thing. But I think one of the key differences was not so much cultural differences, but access. I think socioeconomic factors are a key determinant in your work ethic. The more challenging your lived experiences have been, the more value you attach um, to the work you do and the more you strive to do your best and challenging sort of political and socioeconomic conditions tend to be more synonymous with countries uh, that are less developed. Uh, so you mean that uh, the, the Asian experience, it's that issue around access to good quality work? Whether you have access to good quality education, whether you have access to good quality healthcare, uh, I think socioeconomic factors are so key in determining how you then move up that food chain. You, so you're currently working as the marketing and comms manager at City of Sydney, and I do want to talk about that, but you're also really well known for being the founder of Girls Rising Up. Can you tell me a little bit about that? 
So Girls Rising Up was a platform that I conceived a couple of years ago. And the inspiration that led to it was a comment that was made by my then three-year-old daughter. So uh, a bit of context, my daughter is what you call a four-culture kid. Uh, She is Malaysian, Sri Lankan, British, Australian. And she um, looks a lot more like me than my husband. And at three, she said to me once, Mama, do the children not want to play with me because I look more like you and not like daddy? And everything that I had achieved in life, everything that I had worked for almost sort of came crashing to my feet like glass. And I was devastated. But I had a choice in that moment. I asked myself, do you want to be devastated by this or are you going to be part of the change? And that's when I said, what is missing? What are we not seeing? And it came back to the phrase, you can't be what you can't see. And I said, well, why don't we put a positive spin on that and say, you can be what you can see. So if that means that I will then find women of a variety of backgrounds and lived experiences and tell their stories, then maybe that's one little step in the direction of having greater representation of the wider society that we live in. Where do you think your daughter picked that up from, like at three? What do you think she saw or didn't see for that matter? Kate, you know, I hate to say this, but it's becoming an increasingly um, prevalent issue amongst children at very young ages these days. I think there's a lot to do with media. I think the movies, the, you know, everywhere you look around you, in many places, people don't look like you on TV. Disney princesses don't look like children of color. And I think there is a sense then from a very young age that if you are different, then it's something that people are pulled back from, that people are afraid of. And I'm hearing increasingly more and more stories of children who are experiencing this at a much younger age. And so Girls Rising Up, so essentially it's a platform for for different women in order to, to share their story. How does it work exactly? So really what we do is the idea was to change the narrative and tell the stories of women who had done amazing things in their lives. We interviewed politicians, CEOs, firefighters, you name it, a range of incredible women that we call the Changemaker series and started to tell their stories, how they overcame their adversity, how they got to where they were going. And the other part of it was we would curate content that appealed to a far greater mass of people um, that represented people of different backgrounds, etc. Because I think where we need to get to is normalizing the concept of diversity, because diversity is society. Where do you think we are with diversity then? Because I mean, I hear you, but there's also been a lot of work done on diversity, or certainly that's the that, that's the appearance. I mean, every large organization you go into mm-hmm. has a diversity policy. Um, it's, it's always something mm-hmm. that particularly in terms of leaders, it's always something that leaders talk about. Where have we got to and where are we falling down? So I'd say, Kate, for me, the, the first thing was the vernacular. I, I really am not a big fan of the word diversity. I don't mm-hmm. actually understand what it, it means outside of an organizational context. And in a forum recently on culture, I asked the question, who exactly am I diverse from? And the answer, as you can imagine, was obvious. You know, white, Anglo-Saxon, heterosexual men. If you then imagine the center of mass that we then orbit around being that sort of, you know, white Anglo-Saxon heterosexual male, the greater your difference, gender, culture, sexual orientation, your, you know, ability, you know, your Barry center increases exponentially. 
So the further you're orbiting away from what is seen as being the sort of archetype of, of a human. And I was also becoming really fed up with being ascribed acronyms. I couldn't even keep up with it. You know, I was CALD, I was POC, WOC, BIPOC. And I then thought, you know, none of these are not necessarily acronyms that I've asked for. I, I don't really ascribe to them. And that's where we came up with the term intercultural, because I felt intercultural was that aspiration of a society that we need to get to. And, you know, there are many different ways and schools of thought and articles on what intercultural mean. But what resonated with me the most was a, de was a definition uh, that, uh, that I read that said, intercultural describes communities in which there is a deep understanding and respect for all cultures. Intercultural communication focuses on the mutual exchange of ideas and cultural norms and the, de and the development of deep relationships. In an intercultural society, no one is left unchanged because everyone learns from one another and grows together. Having been involved in Girls Rising Up, having, like you said, you know, essentially stood up and been part of the change, do you feel more positive and do you think your daughter sees things differently? I do feel more positive. I do feel more positive. I feel like there have been a series of events that have led to a certain tipping point in our world. 2020 encapsulated much of this. And I think what I also saw was, um, you know, by, by, by nature, I, I, I'm a storyteller. I love to tell stories of, you know, other people's lived experiences. And what I found really interesting was that media is slowly catching on to that. So shows on TV, uh, like Indian Marriages or Tiger King, you know, or shows that just naturally had a diverse cast, there was a tremendous appetite from them. And not just from communities of color, but all communities, people wanted to hear these stories. And I feel that the more people who embrace this sort of, you know, increasingly, you know, smaller world that we're in today, the more people who have family, relatives and friends who come from different cultures and the richer the storytelling is becoming, it is the antidote to the polarizing divisiveness that we're seeing, you know, and, and I see us heading towards a unifying of people and society that can only lead to innovation, progression and the creation of society as it should be. Are you concerned about the growing backlash against this movement? You know, that sort of, you know, there, there is resistance to that vision that you paint. Of course, yeah, there is. I, I have a very, you know, I, I have rose-colored glasses on sometimes when I look at how, you know, and, and the hope that I feel about the future, but I'm very, very aware about the systemic issues that we are a long way from overcoming. The pushback has never been greater because, you know, with the rise of, you know, Trumpism, et cetera, I feel like a Band-Aid has been ripped off the world and people are feeling increasingly able to be vocal about this divisiveness and this polarization. And so, yes, there's tremendous pushback. I, you know, can put up the most innocuous Facebook posts and I have a troll that will write paragraphs about me saying the most horrendous things. But I think we have to keep saying these things. I think we have to, at, you know, work at, in society, I think we have to say polarization, divisiveness, it's not getting us anywhere. If we don't come together as one society now, we're never going to be able to address the bigger threats out there like climate change, inequality, etc. In terms of the forces that are pushing back, what's your understanding of why the pushback has never been greater? 
protectionism and fear, I think people see integration of society as an issue as opposed to part of the solution to tackle the greater global challenges we face. And there is a sense that if we allow more people to the table, then our roles get taken away from us. But that isn't the case. We need to make the table bigger. Mm, a sort of uh, a scarcity approach rather than an abundance approach, perhaps. That's right. That's right. Um, so, so yes, I think there is a huge degree of fear and protectionism that we're seeing at the moment, and I understand it. Um, and I think that's where the real shift in thinking needs to occur, but that's so much easier said than done. So you, you're the founder of Girls Rising Up. Like I said, you're also mm-hmm. the marketing and comms manager at City of Sydney. And I also noticed that you volunteer at, um, with GetUp. Do you consider yes. yourself a sort of activist, someone who is, um, you know, have you always been politically active effectively? Yes. <laughs> Both my parents are very politically involved um, and they educated us at a very young age about the sort of systemic inequalities that existed in Malaysia. Um, A bit of history on uh, Malaysia, we... Uh, when we gained independence from the British, the same party that then took over ruled up till 2018. I think we are one of the only so-called democracies in the world that has had one ruling party be in place for this long. And as is the case when there is too much power and greed, you know, other ills creep into it, nepotism, corruption, you know, the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer. So I've always been aware of these political issues that drive so many of our social and economic problems, but it really started to reach a crescendo a few years ago. So I got involved with Get Up while I was here, but then um, a big significant part of my political activism was chairing a grassroots organization called Bursi that was calling for free and fair elections in Malaysia. I chaired that organization for about five years. We ran rallies, we brought speakers in, and it was uh, a tricky role to navigate. And I was glad I was abroad when I was doing this because Malaysia is not a country that is known to take kindly to naysayers or people who speak up against the government. Yeah, that's really, it's really, really interesting. And it's interesting your point that it's probably easier to do here than it necessarily was in Malaysia yeah. and how um, you can support your country even when you no longer live there. Um, yes. Do you think, uh, you know, you, you sound very much like an activist and very politically involved. Do you think democracy is still the answer? You know, and I say that bearing in mind, Trump is challenging, Brexit is challenging, but these are all democratic, uh, these are all the result of democratic process. What do you think? I don't think democracy serves a purpose anymore. I think democracy has been so twisted out of shape that you can't even call it democracy. Um, I think it's elitism. Um, I think it is increasingly and, and quite scarily becoming more and more autocratic. You know, and I go back to the point, the rich and the privileged are becoming richer and the gap between the haves and the have-nots has never been greater. I think we need an entire, I think we need to actually break the existing institutions, systems and structures down to the ground and rebuild them in a way that creates an equitable, fair, progressive society. I mean, there's a level of frustration there, I think. You know, when I, when I look at the sort of democratic politics, what I see is a slightly sclerotic system, you know, resistant to change. Mm-hmm. So good ideas mm-hmm. that have come up, and I'm thinking, for example, of citizen juries, you know, which is something that we've talked about in Australia and they talk about in other countries, but there's not, there's no, to me, there's no appetite, you know, to, to sort of even try new things on the fringes of your democratic process so that you could start to see what works and what doesn't work. What do you think? I agree. And I think it goes back to the protectionism thing. You know, we're, we're afraid of the unfamiliar. But what's happening organically is 
where we're seeing male leadership, and, and we've got so much evidence around it, around how the COVID pandemic was handled, the you know rebounding of certain economies. And I don't think it's a coincidence that countries that were led by toxic masculinity, um, Trump, Boris Johnson, you name it, fared a lot worse than countries like New Zealand. You know, I, I, I really resonate with the term the glass cliff, uh, which is, you know, when a job becomes too difficult, you call a woman. And I think what we're seeing now is that the qualities that we need in our leadership are clarity empathy, collaboration, inclusion, and resilience. And I think because women have experienced this to a larger extent, just in their, you know, everyday challenges, being a woman, um, I think they embody a lot of this and know how to handle something like this far better than men who don't and and largely men of privilege. There's one thing you said there that I want to pick up on, and it's Mm -hmm. that idea about uh, in terms of the political process and where we go from here, is it revolution or evolution? You know, when you said that idea of we need to break everything, that reminded me of Steve Bannon, you know, (laughs) Trump's advisor, because that's what he said, you know, smash everything. And you get that coming out of the UK as well with people like Dominic Cummings, you know, smash everything. Me personally, you know, I'm more in favour of evolution than I am in revolution. Where do you stand? I'd like to agree with that, Kate, but I haven't seen evolution create significant change, not in the way that we should be progressing. So it almost feels like we have to be pushed to the brink. That needs to be a revolution. There needs to be a global pandemic for us to stop and reevaluate the way we've been doing things and whether they're serving us. It's an interesting one that, you know, in the end, democracy is a system that, like it or not, has brought a huge amount of blessings to a huge amount of people. Yes. It's scary to think that we might get to the point where we would willingly dismantle a system that has brought so much without knowing what the future holds. I take it from this that you're an optimist. I am an optimist. And I don't feel that we need to dismantle the entire system. I think we need to review and reevaluate and like any other process, work out what's working and what's not working and really be able to say, well, you know, if this is the outcome we want to get to, you know, an innovative, inclusive, progressive society where there's greater equality than inequality, then what is going to get us there? You mentioned the pandemic. What's the pandemic meant? What did the pandemic mean for you personally? What kind of changes or did it bring around? What kind of insights did you have? At the start of the pandemic, I had a, uh, I was moved into a different team uh, where we were responsible for doing all the internal comms uh, on the pandemic. It was very early days. We didn't have a lot of information, but we had to make sure the staff were informed. Uh, I was very fortunate in that process to undertake a series of interviews with our frontline workers. So I interviewed the, the liaison officers for homelessness, childcare workers, depot maintenance workers. And I think it was one of the best pandemic lessons that I learned because hearing their stories, how they got, you know, 200 odd homeless people into temporary accommodation in something like three days. And I remember speaking to the liaison officer for homelessness and I said, how do you do this every day? You're dealing with the most vulnerable in society. And he said, you know, whether it's a bushfire or a pandemic, our purpose doesn't change. And it really made me reevaluate my pandemic challenges in light of that and work out what was really important to me. And 
here again, I think the medium of storytelling is so important because when we hear stories that are different to ours, it opens up our thinking in a way that policy and, you know, uh, other sort of traditional mediums of getting things across aren't doing as effectively. I want to bring this back to um, female leadership and, and women in the pandemic, because we, t- we mentioned earlier about how it's been a good time for female leadership. Obviously, everyone looks at Jacinta Ardern versus male leadership, mm-hmm. if you like, if you look at Trump. But at the same time, the pandemic has been worse for women generally yes. than it's been for men, particularly women with children. And I, and I talk from experience with two children myself, but also from what I've read and, and also the stats that are coming out about the amount of work that women have had to do during the women with children in particular have had to do during the pandemic. You have two young children. Um, I read an interview where you talked of struggle and strive rather than <laughs> yes. juggle and thrive. So what, what was your experience? Did, did, it double, did, did your workload increase effectively? Oh, absolutely. And, and I think that's the nature of being a woman. Um, and it's got its pros and its cons. But I think we are incredibly resilient human beings. And I think when you're forced into a situation like the pandemic, you find a, almost a, sum, a superhuman strength to be able to take what's coming your way in a fairly sort of pragmatic, clear. I mean, and that's not to say there isn't a tremendous amount of emotion, etc. Um, you, you approach it in a quite sort of pragmatic way. To your point about women suffering greatly uh, or greater during the pandemic, this again, historically has always been the case. And I think it is that sort of, you know, suffering that has led us to have this incredible resilience. And so, yes, I think it is a time for fe- for feminine leadership. I think because of what we've gone through, we have the goods and the qualities of leadership of the future. So, Mathuri, I am a working mum, two kids. I work full time. And so, you know, I, I said I'd read that comment about struggle and strive rather than juggle and thrive. Mm-hmm. Um, I sometimes wonder if my daughter will want to do the same as me, to be honest with you. You know, if I talk mm. to my daughter, she thinks I work too hard. Yes. Um, she thinks I'm always working. Those are her words. <laughs> and um, and I'm, I'm often tired, you know. And so I yeah. feel as a mother that's like guilt of not having the best for my children. Do you ever think about that for the future generation of women? Do you think they look back on us and think, yeah, they did a great job? Or do you think they'll go in a different direction? I think they'll go in a different direction. These are children that are raised in the age of technology. And I think, you know, even the current generation of young women don't want to work the way uh, we're working at the moment. They don't want to have that sort of working mother type, you know, you're constantly exhausted, you're not being able to give enough as a parent, you're not being able to give enough to work, and you're constantly feeling inadequate. And I think that that is another opportunity we have to role model working mothers in a way that future generations will embrace. But what that then means is we have to start breaking down the stigmas of being able to do it all, be it all, and and the guilt, shed the guilt and the belief that we have to do everything. I think this is where the roles, the domestic roles are starting to change. And I find that very encouraging because men are now increasingly willing to break stereotypes, be the main caregiver. And I think also the pandemic, uh, who has, you know, which has forced some men out of the workforce, it's now becoming a lot less of a stigma for the father to be the main caregiver. Where I think we need the support for that to happen is where we need organizations to continue to be more progressive to enable these shifts. You know, flexibility of work, paid parental leave for both parents. We need to be looking at, you know, gender pay gaps. And I think that organizations have to understand that domestic dynamics have changed and we need them to continue to create progressive policies that enable parents to take an equal load of work and care. 
I want to come back to one thing, actually, <laughs> so that you mentioned then. It's about the male-female domestic dynamic. I was just thinking about it. You've heard of that concept of the female load, you know, in terms of how much yes. time women spend in their head, you know, planning <laughs> domestic duties. So I can agree with you that on the surface, domestic duties have shifted. Yeah. So there's yes. more male caregiving. I don't think, and I mean, I'm drawing on my own relationship here, obviously. Mm-hmm. I don't think the female load has shifted. I think women still carry most of that that kind of emotional work around families in their head. What do you? Oh, think? absolutely. The emotional load, the mental load, the capacity to remember what's required for school that day and what bills you know need to be paid, and and that you know is something that women still have to bear. But I think if we frame it, if we were to look at it as an organization, I think women are the CEOs, and then men are like the COOs. And I'm making generalizations that I'm sure many men would not appreciate. But I think you know we are able to multitask. We are able to do you know lots of different things and remember lots of things. But I think we. Need need to then say, here's what needs to be executed. You do that bit. Because I think that's the only way we can share that load and reduce the mental load for women. Thanks for listening. And I hope you enjoyed the episode. This episode was produced by our amazing producer, Lisa Gebelagin. If you enjoyed it, then make sure you subscribe and leave us a rating. And for more from Women's Agenda, visit womensagenda.com.au. I'm looking forward to hosting you at the next episode. Women's Agenda is proud to partner with Salesforce on this podcast series. As the world's leading CRM, Salesforce continues to be a different kind of Fortune 500 company, one that cares and gives back to the community, yet innovates like a startup. Equality is a core value at Salesforce and as a business, believes that its higher purpose is to drive equality for all. For more, visit salesforce.com.